This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Another huge week of news at both the national and state levels. First, two United States Supreme Court decisions on gay rights and DACA, whether children of undocumented immigrants can stay in this country. We'll talk about that with one of our guests. Secondly, in Michigan, battles over what issues might be on the ballot this fall in the general election persist. And they are unresolved. An effort by Right to Life of Michigan to get a proposal before voters to ban an abortion procedure known as dilation and evacuation looked like it was going to be denied ballot access. But then the Board of State canvassers said, let's do a recount of the petition signatures so we do not know what will happen next. Another proposal related to time in prison is also up in the air after a federal judge said it should be allowed on the ballot, but that's being appealed. Thirdly, Governor Gretchen Whitmer has extended her state of emergency executive order shutting down the state to July 16th. It was expected to expire Friday, but now it continues for nearly another month at least. Of course, that is being challenged in court too, And a federal judge ruled this week that the issue must be decided by the state Supreme Court as to whether Big Gretch can extend such orders unilaterally ad infinitum without any check by the legislature or anybody else. That may take a long time to decide. We don't know how it will turn out. But in the meantime, something else was announced that may make the whole question moot. A group that Democrats and the news media think is at least loosely affiliated with the Republican Party said it would initiate a petition drive to collect 340,000 signatures to place an initiative before the legislature that would rescind, that means abolish, the old 1945 so-called Riot Act which Whitmer has been using to justify her legal authority to issue and extend her executive orders without any check from anybody or any institution of government. If the petitioners gather the signatures that are required, a majority of both the House and Senate could approve the language without the governor's signature being required. It would not go on the ballot. It would be law. That is exactly what the Republicans who control the legislature have wanted all along. They would not need any court to rule on the legality of Whitmer's actions to this point because the petition language would wipe out the necessity of seeking any judicial intervention. Fourth. The demon barber of Main Street in Owasso, Carl Mankey, seemingly has won total victory in his battle with the state and Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Not only did the Supreme Court rule the state had no right to shut him down from giving haircuts, 
but the State Department of Licensing and Regulatory Affairs gave him his license back, which they had suspended. This news was buried by the news media, which is clearly in the tank for Governor Whitmer and everything she decides to do because these moves don't make her look so good. Bottom line, Owasso Barber wins. Whitmer and Attorney General Dana Nessel lose. Fifth, what is the death toll from the coronavirus in Michigan at this point? Over 60,000 positive cases have been identified and nearly 5,900 deaths. But that's way less than a trio of international experts have estimated have died in Michigan over the past three months as a result of the state's economic shutdown by Governor Whitmer. Let's bring that home to Michigan. Michigan's approximately 10 million people represent roughly 3% of the nation's population of some 330 million people. 3% of 200,000 national deaths from a damaged economy means about 6,000 deaths in Michigan, which amazingly is about equal to the number of deaths attributed to the coronavirus in Michigan thus far. So you could say that it's almost a trade-off, 6,000 deaths in Michigan in either case from the virus or from a shattered economy, except that the COVID-19 total is still rising and we do not know when it will end or if it will end anytime soon. What do these economically deprived Michiganders die from? Well, the usual suspects, although at a much higher rate than would have been the case had the state's economy been firing on all cylinders. Specifically, they die from suicide, nephritis, flu and pneumonia, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, stroke, chronic lower respiratory infections, cancer, and heart disease. But wait, there's another factor noted by these experts. I mentioned this last week. Lives are also lost because of delayed or foregone health care imposed by the shutdown and the fear it creates among patients. Neurosurgery clinicians estimate that about half of their patients have not appeared for the past three months for treatment of disease, which, left untreated, risks brain hemorrhage, paralysis, or death. Examples of missed health care would include emergency stroke evaluations, which are down 40%. Of the 650,000 cancer patients receiving chemotherapy in the United States, an estimated half are missing treatments. Cancer screenings, almost two-thirds of them, are not happening because of shutdown policies and fear among the population. Nearly 85% fewer donor transplants are occurring now compared with the same period last year. In addition, more than half of childhood vaccinations are not being performed, setting up the potential of a massive future health disaster. So nationally, we're talking about a million and a half lost years of life during this national lockdown. If Michigan is 3% of that national total, it means 
45,000 lost years of life, which by any calculation is way higher than the 6,000 lives lost in Michigan to this point by the coronavirus. Now, keep in mind that nothing like this has ever happened in the past. In the three 20th century pandemics, those beginning in 1918, 1957, and 1968, there was never an economic dislocation imposed by governments and public health experts such as we've seen this year. Only the 1918 flu achieved morbidity like what we're seeing with the coronavirus. 1957 and 1968 had a cumulative death toll roughly the same as what we're seeing in 2020. And remember that the population back then was barely half of what it is today, which means that the per capita death rate was far higher in 1957 and 1968 than what we're experiencing now. So those are the facts so far in this unfolding drama, and we should all think about them. By the way, when we look at who these international experts were that made these estimates on death from economic dislocation, they're pretty impressive people. Uh, Stretching from Stanford University, University of Chicago, University of Jerusalem. I'll be back in a minute with our first guest on another facet of the impact of the coronavirus on Michigan education. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the line with us our favorite Michigan public high school English and film teacher, Ann Jacoby Russo. Ann, thanks for being our guest. Thanks for having me back. Okay. When we last talked to you nearly three months ago, I think, you were getting ready to embark, if that's the word for it, on a experiment, online teaching, because of the shutdown of school buildings in our public high schools here in Michigan. You were a teacher yeah. at Holt High School, just south of Lansing, and you were ready to connect with your students. And I just want to ask you broadly, after... It's all been said and done, and the school year is now over with. How did it work out? I would say overall uh, it was a positive experience, Um, and I'm not just, you know, saying that for PR reasons. Um, There were some hiccups, of course. When we left on the 13th, we all assumed we'd be coming back probably in late April. Yeah, that was March 13th, right? Yep, that was our last day, and... um, Generally speaking, my students across the board in three English classes and two film classes uh, participated in the online work. Um, I didn't, you know, go heavy on the homework. I I had one to two assignments per week. And um, for my film students, they were allowed to choose films and watch movies on, on their own and write about them and talk to me about them and dress up as characters if they wanted. 
And then for my English students, they had readings and, um, you know, I tried to get author, uh, shorter pieces from authors we were planning to study at the end of the year and just journaling and, and whatnot. Um, overall, they, they participated. The seniors uh, had, you know, a little trouble staying focused the last couple weeks, which seniors, seniors always do at the end of the year. But overall, it was a positive experience. When you say most of the students participated, at what percentage do you think really you know, pretty much dug in and did everything that you asked them to do? What percentage? I would, yeah, I would safely say of my students, I can't speak for everyone at whole, but for my students, um, I would say probably 80 to 85 percent. Well, did the ones that didn't participate, what, what do you think was going on in their minds? Uh, was there something that they felt, you know, they could kind of fall back on, like there was something maybe in the governor's executive order in the beginning that indicated that they could just kind of ride on whatever their mark was back on March 13th, (laughs) and that couldn't go down. It could only go up. And if they decided, nah, I don't need it to go up anymore. I just want to make sure it doesn't go down. And maybe they just kind of blew everything off. Did that happen? Uh, Absolutely, yes. Um, we were stuck kind of uh, between a rock and a hard place, uh, given that our governor um, had a mandate for continue, continuous learning. So our, the interpretation of that broadly was that students had to continue doing work from home um, or online somewhere where they had access, and that had to continue for our district. Um, the hard date for that was May 29th. And then um, we had two weeks of extended learning and a chance for um, students to bring their grade up from failing if they were at that point. Um, so the other flip side to that was that the governor, the governor's language was also interpreted to mean that students were unable to um, lower their grade no matter what um, from the March 13th, you know, stay-at-home order. So uh, we... We were kind of stuck between students knowing that their grade could remain the same when they left on the 13th till the end of the semester, uh, no matter how much work they did. Now, for students who were motivated and, you know, respected me and my classwork, they obviously worked to bring their grades up, which was an option. But, yeah, there were absolutely students um, not doing anything or doing very little and, you know, messaging me an administration and saying, wait, you know, why are you putting zeros in for this work online uh, in our grade online grade book when, you know, the governor and the administration said our grades could not go down. What kind of feedback did you get from parents uh, about this experience? Do they feel pretty good about it? Um, I can honestly, I teach mostly juniors and seniors. So at that point in education and kind of the understanding that I have with my students is that you know, at this point, you're going to be leaving uh, and graduating soon and going on. Um, we don't really need to involve the parents that much because you're a young adult. Um, but the, I did have a few, a few parents say, um, you know, this is really difficult, and they were ultra supportive of me and my colleagues. And um, even if they weren't like, you know, a, like in middle school or had middle schoolers or younger students and had to actually teach them at home, um, they still were very sympathetic to what was happening with all of us. And um, a couple of them are teachers or profs at MSU, and they understand how difficult it was to 
um, just try to make online learning work in such uh, quick circumstances. And they were actually really supportive. So whether or not their students were, you know, staying on top of my work, um, there were, I mean, there were some frustrated parents because graduation is coming up and, you know, they, they saw that their student wasn't passing. But for those, um, we just communicated and got the kids back on track. And um, I only had a couple of failures this year. So it ended up being a pretty good end of the year. At Hull High School, uh, what does it look like going forward? I mean, when do you think you're going to open? I mean, the governor gave another executive order, I think, this week about school openings. Uh, what is the situation? What's your feeling? What's going to happen in the fall at Holt High School? Um, you know, we have very uh, basic kind of vague uh, options right now. Um, there is a committee formed. One of my good friends is on the committee for reopening in the fall. Um, he had a meeting yesterday, and um, it was just kind of the first meeting, so not a lot was decided, obviously. But um, we have been told that we are either going to do face-to-face with social distancing and safety precautions, um, or we're going to do a hybrid at-home and in-person schedule, or our third option will be what we've been doing since March 13th, and that would be just online at home. Um, my 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 gut tells me that given other local districts around us going making the plans to go back face to face with maybe a hybrid schedule, I think we are probably going to go back mid August. Um, Hull is on a hybrid year round schedule anyway, so we always start in the middle of August. Um, so I believe our schedule will be very similar to last year, and we'll start around like the 18th or 19th of August. And you think. It, the hybrid uh, approach, the second approach you mentioned, it's going to be some combination of in-face, in-classroom instruction uh, and some online. Do you think that's probably the way it's going to work out or not? Um, I really, I don't have a gut feeling. If I had to, if my preference would be to go back face-to-face as usual with precautions, um, at least for the high school because we have big enough um, classrooms but also to, um, you know, just not do a hybrid. It's, it was difficult enough doing the online, and I can't imagine doing both. And I don't know with, you know, so many students at Holt how we, we would manage that. But, you know, right. we're teachers. We'll make it happen. Yeah, well, I wish we could talk more about this. Uh, I understand that every individual school district makes its own plans on how they yeah. want to proceed, and this is what you're going through. I want to thank you, Ann Russo, English and film teacher at Hold High School. Thank you again for being our guest. Thanks so much for having me. We'll be back in a minute with another guest on another subject. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are fortunate to have with us Jay Kaplan, who is the staff attorney for the LGBTQ project of the American Civil Liberties Union of Michigan, ACLU. Jay Kaplan, ACLU, staff attorney, LGBTQ project. Thanks for being our guest. Oh, thanks for for having me here, Bill. It's a pleasure. Okay, big day, I would think, for the LGBTQ community in Michigan and everywhere with the United States Supreme Court decision this week. 
How would you describe it, and what does it mean going forward? This is a historic decision, Bill. I can't overestimate the the impact of this decision on the LGBT rights movement. What the court said was that uh, when you discriminate against LGBT people in the employment setting, that you are doing so because of sex, that this is a form of sex discrimination, that uh, sex is inextricably linked to one's sexual orientation or gender identity, and it's usually based on the, the employer's thoughts about how someone should look or act or who they should love based on the sex assigned at birth. Why this decision is so important for LGBT people is that only 21 states out of 50 have civil rights laws that explicitly mention sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, The other 29 states, like Michigan, do not have those explicit protections. And so what that decision did on Monday is it afforded LGBT people in all 50 states protection from employment discrimination. So is it game, set, match, a problem solved that the LGBTQ community has been seeking all this time, the decision you wanted, and here in Michigan, uh, that kind of discrimination is gone forever? Problem not completely solved because this case dealt with uh, discrimination in the employment uh, setting, but uh, LGBT people encountered discrimination in all different contexts, in, in education, in housing, in public accommodations. And this decision, the rationale behind this decision, can be used in the courts to challenge those other forms of discrimination. But what we still need to do is we need to amend our Michigan Civil Rights Law to explicitly mention sexual orientation and gender identity. So then there's there's no question, and it's not subject to to, uh, judicial interpretation. We also need to pass uh, the Federal Equality Act, which would make it clear that under federal civil rights laws, sex is does include sexual orientation and gender identity in education, in housing, as well as public accommodation. So we don't want to necessarily have to leave it, leave it up to court interpretations and, and based on individual judges and how they decide. Um, you know, this is a very powerful tool that this decision has given us in various, you know, court litigation. But we would, we would, we would take care of everything if we had those explicit mentions of sexual orientation and gender identity in our state and federal civil rights laws. Here in Michigan, we're talking about the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act. That's what you think should have uh, coverage for sex discrimination in it. And there's a petition drive underway uh, to try and get that on the ballot for the citizens of Michigan to uh, support that. Uh, It's questionable at this point whether it's going to get on the ballot and if so, when. But has the U.S. Supreme Court decision had any bearing on the petitioners, the people seeking to get this on the ballot? Do they just think, you know, really, we're just going to press forward uh, regardless of what the Supreme Court said this week? And it helps us psychologically uh, in what we're aiming for. But we would do this anyway, and it still needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, my understanding is uh, uh, that they issued a statement saying that they're reviewing the decision and deciding what the course that they're that they're that they will be going forward and the fact remains bill is legislation is has 
has been introduced for more than two decades that would, would do the job. And there is legislation uh, before the Michigan legislature in both the House and the Senate. And at this point in time, both the House and the Senate leadership have refused to move the bills forward to even allow them to have a committee hearing. And so that's kind of where we're stuck right now. But the Michigan's legislature could take care of this today. Uh, and it's just a matter of whether or not they're willing to do so. Right. Let me ask you, um, it was way back in 1964 when a Virginia congressman, Howard Smith, got up and proposed an amendment uh, to the Civil Rights Act to cover sex discrimination, which we've been talking about, and it passed. His amendment passed. It was very controversial. I'm just curious, why has it taken all this time? Since 1964, for a case to reach the U.S. Supreme Court that was decided this week, I mean, did they ever have this question uh, put to them before this? Any other court? I know the court changes over time. There are new members of the Supreme Court at the national level, obviously, and departing uh, members. But I'm just astounded that it took this long. What do you think? Yeah. Well, you know, for more than two decades, lower federal courts have been looking at this issue as to whether or not LGBT people are protected under federal civil rights laws that prohibit sex discrimination. So there have been a number of there's been a number of favorable decisions, and, and and with regards to transgender people, just like our case in Michigan involving Amy Stevens, just about every federal circuit court of appeals had affirmatively held that uh, transgender people were protected under Title VII, the federal civil rights law that prohibited sex discrimination. But um, this was the first time that the Supreme Court granted cert. There were at least four justices on the court that wanted the court to, to look at this issue. And um, But we've seen since, you know, since the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, we've seen how the court has uh, has uh, has expanded that definition, has broadened the definition of what the prohibition on sex discrimination encompasses. It encompasses sexual harassment on the job. It encompasses gender stereotyping of employees. And now the court has made it clear that under that theory, it includes LGBT people. In other words, over time, uh, even though lower courts made rulings one way or another on cases like this, you know there are always appeals, but every time there was an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, they didn't take it up until, you know, they decided last year, I guess, to take it up, and they considered it over the winter and into the spring, and now they came out with their decision this week. Is that what you're saying? Right, right. I, I guess, you know, there were enough justice that wanted to look at this, because a lot of times a court the court will decide not to take up a case, especially when there's not a great disparity between the different circuit courts of appeals. I mean, it, it, it doesn't mean that it, it would, that would stop them, but it is unusual when the court wants to necessarily weigh in on an issue where most of the courts, the lower courts, have, have been in con, uh, consensus. But, you know, as far as Michigan goes, we're part of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and since 2004, we've had a decision saying that transgender people were protected under Title VII for employment discrimination. We, our Sixth Circuit has issued three opinions, uh, you know, that, that, that said that same thing. Yeah, you mentioned that the case that the Supreme Court decided this week involved a Michigan woman. I think, unfortunately, she's passed away by this time, so she didn't even see this victory. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, tell us about that case. I mean, what was she complaining about? Sure. Well, Amy Stevens, she worked at um, the Harris Funeral Home. She was an embalmer as well as a funeral director. 
uh, very dedicated to her job. I had excellent evaluations. I got a raise in her job, uh, but she had not. She was not presenting as her authentic female self at work. She was afraid to do so. Finally, she summoned the courage and she told her employer who she was that she was a transgender woman, and he fired her. And it was a devastating loss to her and to her her identity and her, her what she felt her purpose in life was. And she decided she wanted to do something about it. She contacted the ACLU of Michigan, and we advised her to file a complaint with the EEOC. And uh, they investigated. She, you know, the case went up to federal district court, got a bad opinion, appealed it to the Sixth Circuit where we represented her, and, and she won. And... Um, you know, this is this was a, a long journey for her. This happened to her in 2013, wow. and I think she found a second purpose in telling her story and trying to redress the wrong that was done to her to try to help other transgender people. Listen, this is an incredible story, and you've done a great job explaining it. I wish we could talk about it more. We're out of time, but Jay Kaplan with the ACLU staff attorney for the LGBTQ Project. Thank you, Jay Kaplan. Thanks so much, Bill. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back and we are very lucky to have with us here uh, Manar Talib. Uh, She is a tractor, and I mean that as a compliment. She is a graduate of Dearborn Fordson High School, home of the famous tractors. And she graduated last year, and then she went off to the Ivy League. Uh, Unusual for students from Dearborn Fordson. I think she had three classmates that went to Harvard and uh, two more that went to MIT. And, uh, boy, they had a glittering class of scholars, Menar was one of them, and she arrived at Princeton University last fall, and she spent uh, her first five or six months getting used to things uh, in the Ivy League in New Jersey, and then Bluey, the coronavirus hit campus. So, Manar, thanks for being our guest. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. <laughs> okay, so, Manar, tell us about it. I mean, what was your experience going to the Ivy League from Dearborn and you're getting acclimated at Princeton, and then you have this happen in March. Oh, I was having so much fun getting adjusted to college and being away from home and having all that independence and experiencing new things. And then just as the spring semester was starting, we were kind of, like, thrown into this, like, uncertainty, especially since leading up to, like, the university had to make a decision before we left for our spring break because we had to know if we had to, like, pack everything up and leave or if we were supposed to come back and get it. So everyone in that last week when we were waiting for their decisions and they kept, like, announcing things and then saying, oh, wait, no, we're doing this now, everyone was kind of just, like, in chaos. And we also had our midterms that week. So it was just even more, like, stressful. And people had to make, like, last-minute, like, travel changes and all of that. Boy, it must have been chaos. Uh, and I think your parents drove nine hours all the way from Detroit or Dearborn to come and get you, right? Oh, yeah. And we were originally supposed to just, me and my parents, go, like, to my brothers for my spring break. But then they just, like, got the whole family out of school, packed everything up, and then drove down to get me. So when you uh, left 
at that point, you weren't totally sure whether you were going to be able to come back before the end of the school year or what? Well, actually, the day before, they had announced to us that the rest of the semester was um, going to be online. So they were saying, don't come back if you, um, what's called, don't have to. They obviously made exceptions for students who, like, had extenuating circumstances. But, like, they kind of made that decision just, like, the night before, and we had to, like, pack everything up really quickly. I see. Um, Before that, the plan was to, like, extend the spring break a week or two and then come back on, like, April 4th to pick up our stuff or to continue classes. They weren't clear about that, but they they said come back April 4th. But then the next day they were like, don't come back at all if you don't have to. Boy. Uh, okay, so you launch into this online learning experience. How did that work out over the rest of the academic year for you? Well, I had two lecture classes, so it was relatively easy for them to make that online. They just recorded the lectures and told us to watch them on our own time. So in that way that we had, we could, like, pause the lecture, go back, and kind of, like, have it at ready for us, that was convenient. But for other classes, like, um, what's it called? My... It decreased the value of the learning. Like, my French class, I didn't really learn much last semester because it was just, like, 15 minutes in the morning on Zoom, and we weren't really, I don't know, it was just different doing over video call as compared to being in person. And then um, my writing STEM class was, like, greatly reduced. We met, like, once a week for 30 minutes, and she was being really um, helpful and trying to help us, like, um, be able to still complete the course and not be too stressed about, like, school and having home responsibilities or people who are sick at home. So she really helped us out there. But, again, like, second semester, really, I don't think I learned a lot or got a lot from it. But some class tried to kind of give us accommodations, considering everything was going on, but some classes kind of like business as usual. What about other students that had more complex subject matter like art students i mean how could they function in that situation yeah the art classes like i am not sure what happened to the dance classes i can't i don't know that i can't even imagine how they would make that online but i had a friend who was in um like video installation class and an uh painting class and so they just basically had to paint with whatever materials they had at home and then just like come in for critique and so Princeton, like, gave them money to buy supplies online and then get it sent to them. But the art class is basically just, like, draw at home and then show me your um, painting over Zoom. What about next year? Is there going to be a next year? Do you know? What's the schedule? What are the circumstances? They, the university hasn't really been um, telling us anything yet. All they told us is that they're considering all the options and that they're going to make an announcement early July. Uh, I actually just got an email yesterday saying that in light of the new um, uh, decree they made in New Jersey about higher learning, they said um, New Jersey basically said you could ha- were allowed to have higher learning like in class things, but there's a ton of restrictions. The university said this doesn't change anything about the things they're planning, but they're going to like keep that in mind, I guess. But we're waiting for a actual plan in the next one or two weeks. With your courses this spring. Uh you know, most of them or all of them online. Did you have final exams just as you would have if you'd been in a classroom at Princeton? Um, for a couple of my classes, my finals were the same. Like for my French class, I didn't have a final, but I had a presentation and like a um, paper. So that didn't change and they didn't change the deadline or anything like that. And then 
my other lecture class was like same final as usual with the same like honor code in place, closed book, three hours. And then one of my finals got changed to a take-home exam, and it was open note. So, again, that was one of the classes that was really trying to, like, help us do our best with what we could. So that was really nice. And then my um, my writing seminar just canceled our June date, um, our final uh, paper completely, because they were like, we don't need this. <laughs> so have you gotten your marks uh, then for freshman year? I mean, you're all done freshman year. You know how you scored, what your marks were? Yes, I did. And since um, the university, in light of, like, they knew that our learning was going to be impacted by it being online, they allowed us to elect pass-fail for any class, regardless if it's in your department or not. So I ended up, um, one of my classes got changed to mandatory pass, so that was the one I had to worry about. And then I changed another one, my molecular biology class, to um, pass because I was really, like, not doing well. That's not because of kind of just everything that was going on. So second semester, I really wasn't in the game. And then my first class, I don't know, like, I I did pretty good this year, but I'm next year I'm really excited for it, and I really hope we're on campus. Did you take French before you got to Princeton, or is this your first year? Uh, I took it in high school. Yeah. Well, um, so in other words, you've passed a sophomore year, right? You're now a full-fledged rising sophomore. Yes. Okay, well... Um, how did you find the college experience? Was it a challenge for you? Um, it was definitely, like, a big learning curve because the, like, town where I'm from, the it's just a lot different than Princeton, and I kind of had to acclimate to, like, me, being with all of these different people and kind of, like, uh, the culture on Princeton and stuff like that. But it was really fun, like, meeting new people and kind of, like, seeing the world outside of my little town. And so I was, like... And adjusting to um, college work and that kind of level. So there were, like, ups and downs. But I think overall I had a really positive experience my first year. Are you pretty settled? I mean, if the university can make up its mind what it's going to do in the fall, I mean, you know where you're going to room, you know your courses, you know what you're hoping for. Oh, yeah. I'm hoping I definitely, and for my schedule as far as next year's classes, I have, like, two alternate schedules, one if it's online and one if it's not, because I wanted to take an art class because I'm trying to get an art certificate. But um, let's call it. Yeah, so I definitely planned that out with my schedule. And we've already had our room draw and everything, so I know who I'll be rooming with, where, and kind of everything. is. They, they've basically gone forward with housing plans as if everything is normal, and then they'll cancel it if, like, they have to. So that's basically how they've been running it. Have you had a chance to compare notes with any of your sister tractors since you got back, <laughs> the ones who went to Harvard, to find out what their experience was there or the students that went to MIT compared to what you've gone through at Princeton? Well, I didn't. I haven't really gotten in touch with the um, girls who went to Harvard, but I do know, like, at Princeton they were talking about it because this was kind of like, oh, no, I hope they don't do this to us because Harvard basically gave them a week to, like, move out and evacuate from campus. And this was, like, kind of out of nowhere. So they did, they gave them, like, no time at all to leave campus. And everyone at Princeton was really worried that would happen to us. But thankfully, and Princeton ended up giving us, like, two weeks to leave. And so we were able to, like, get everything together and kind of make the changes we, uh, that were necessary before we left. Well, Manar Talib, you've given us a great overview of what it was like for you going from 
being a Dearborn Fordson tractor to being a Princeton Tiger. And what you encountered, you'll have a freshman year you will never forget, if only because of the coronavirus, but there's so many other reasons I'm sure you appreciate what you experienced. Thank you, Manar Talib, for being our guest. Thank you for having me, Bill. We'll be back next week with still more.